This is Bhagavad Gita as it is. The translation and commentary is by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami, Srila Prabhupada. He is the founder and acharya of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness and my spiritual master. And I'm very fond of this book. Uh, I've read many editions. Before I read Srila Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita, I read many other editions of Bhagavad Gita. And I can say honestly, 40 years later, that I didn't understand those Bhagavad Gita's at all. And moreover, I think the reason that I didn't understand those Bhagavad Gita's is because the publishers didn't understand those Bhagavad Gita's either. <coughs> In Bhagavad Gita itself, Krishna describes the method by which this knowledge is received. And it is received. It's not attained. It's received. He says, Evam Kanam You have to receive this thing from a succession of gurus and disciples that come since ancient antiquity. So, because Srila Prabhupada was coming in one of those disciplic successions, and because he had no business motives for presenting his Bhagavad Gita, and because he was very carefully basing all of his comments, virtually all of them, on the words of his predecessors, who have previously, the people have been commenting on Bhagavad Gita for thousands of years. Not ordinary people, great exalted sages and acharyas. So Srila Prabhupada consulted those commentaries and he composed his own on that, that basis. And that's the recommended process. Krishna says in the same chapter, one has to understand this Bhagavad Gita from approaching a bona fide guru and inquiring from him submissively and rendering service unto him. Which is to say, one has to find a bona fide guru who is coming in a disciplic succession that is recognized. And one has to render humble service to that person and inquire submissively, and then one can receive this transcendental wisdom. In other words, as Krishna says throughout the Bhagavad Gita, this text is understood through one thing only, and that is bhakti, devotion, or as Prabhupada translates, pure devotional service. So that's one thing, that's, that's what brought me to sitting here today. <clears throat> Srila Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita is very special in that way. There are many, many editions of Bhagavad Gita, as I said, I read several of them. And the purpose of Bhagavad Gita is very clear. Everyone agrees 
that there are many ways to interpret Bhagavad Gita, but everyone agrees that at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Arjun is going to do what? Anybody know? Who's read Bhagavad Gita? He's yeah. going to kill some people. And he's going to fight. He's going to fight. Anything else? Why is he going to fight? Krishna's because Krishna asked him to fight. It's his duty. It's his duty. It's his duty. And mainly the point is that Krishna asked him to do this. Sorry? To do his karma. Yes. He surrendered to Krishna. He surrendered to Krishna. Krishna asked him to do something that he wasn't inclined to do. You wouldn't be inclined to do if you were in the, uh, do it either if you were in the circumstances. But he surrendered. And <clears throat> this is what Bhagavad Gita is meant to inspire and direct. So many editions of Bhagavad Gita in English and I, I couldn't understand all of them, but none of those editions have actually inspired anyone to become a devotee of Krishna, to actually surrender one's life to Krishna. Here's one edition of Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavad Gita as it is, and this one edition has inspired hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, not just in North America, but on every continent in this globe. Hundreds of thousands of people. That means that, this is common sense analysis, this is not philosophy. That means that in this Bhagavad Gita there is some special potency. And that potency is the potency of, well, transparency. Transparency means that Srila Prabhupada is not presenting anything that he's inventing out of whole cloth. He's not, he's gotten, he doesn't have any motive to fulfill by speaking what he speaks here. Transparency. So, <clears throat> this is what makes this Bhagavad Gita special. When I first came across this Bhagavad Gita, I, I found that the title appeared to be a little pre presumptuous to me. Bhagavad Gita as it is. Okay, well, what about all the other Bhagavad Gitas? I've read so many of them. They're not really Bhagavad Gita as it is. <laughs> so, the answer is, well, if you stand in the way and if you subtract or add things to the message or if you don't follow the message then it's not really Bhagavad Gita as it is. The transparency has to be there. Surrender has to be there. Alright, so we're talking about yoga. Chapter 6 of Bhagavad Gita is entitled Dhyana Yoga, Yoga of Meditation. And Towards the end of that chapter, Krishna makes a very interesting statement. He says, Atma upam yena saravatra samam pasyati orjana suham vayalivadukham sayogi paramomataha That means, he is a perfect yogi who, by comparison to his own self, sees the true equality of all beings, both in their happiness and their distress. O Arjun. Let's repeat this. He is a perfect yogi who, by comparison to his own self, sees the true equality of all beings in both their happiness and their distress. O Arjun. 
So Srila Prabhupada has written a nice purport here, one paragraph. He says, One who is Krishna conscious is a perfect yogi. He is aware of everyone's happiness and distress. By dint of his own personal experience, the cause of the distress of a living entity is forgetfulness of his relationship with God. And the cause of happiness is knowing Krishna to be the supreme enjoyer of all the activities of the human being, the proprietor of all lands and planets, and sincerest friend of all living entities. The perfect yogi knows that the living being who is conditioned by the modes of material nature is subjected to the threefold material miseries due to forgetfulness of his relationship with Krishna. And because one in Krishna consciousness is happy, he tries to distribute the knowledge of Krishna everywhere. Since the perfect yogi tries to broadcast the importance of becoming Krishna conscious, he is the best philanthropist in the world, and he is the dearest servitor of the Lord. That's another verse from Bhagavad Gita, chapter 18. In other words, a devotee of the Lord always looks to the welfare of all living entities, and in this way he is factually the friend of everyone. He is the best yogi because he does not desire perfection in yoga for, per for his personal benefit, but tries for others also. He does not envy his fellow living entities. Here is a contrast between a pure devotee of the Lord and a yogi interested only in his personal elevation. <clears throat> the yogi who has withdrawn to a secluded place in order to meditate perfectly may not be as perfect as a devotee who is trying his best to turn every man toward Krishna consciousness. So here we see Srila Prabhupada said some very potent things about this verse. First of all, what is everyone's impression now, having heard this verse and its purport? In, in, try to say in one sentence, what is, the, what is the meaning of this verse? Anyone have any ideas about this? Raise your hand if you can summarize it. Uh, number 26. <laughs> <laughs> um. Instead of, from what I'm, I'm, I'm a novice, I'm very new at this, but okay. instead of going into merging with the effulgence, it's better to spread this message of Krishna consciousness. Okay. I won't argue with that. Uh, way in the back. Okay. Um, when one becomes aware of one's own Krishna consciousness, one can see in others where they are um, on their journey. Yes. Based upon how they see what's within themselves. Very good. It's a very insightful answer. Anyone else? Yes. A real philanthropist is someone who's Krishna conscious and wants to make everybody Krishna conscious. Okay. Anything else? All right. So basically, what the verse itself says is that one who has empathy is the greatest yogi. Somebody who has empathy is the greatest yogi. What is the meaning of empathy? What is the definition of empathy? And the Greek root is um, passion. Okay. Like feeling bad for someone else. Show affection. 
Okay, actually the dictionary defines empathy as being understanding what another person's pains and pleasures and concerns are. They may not be spoken, but you have the ability to see what another person is thinking and and feeling and undergoing and maybe, I mean, I've personally experienced this over the course of the last nearly half a century as a member of the ISKCON society. Many persons who are very advanced in Krishna consciousness and they have the ability to do this. <clears throat> the old timers here may remember Tamal Krishna Goswami. He could sit with someone for just a few minutes and he was able to understand very clearly what are this person's material desires, what are this person's spiritual desires, what are his doubts, what are his hang-ups, everything he could understand, what are his pains, what are his pleasures, he was able to see these things. So, and of course Sri Prabhupada himself was also like this. And in general, those who are very effective in communicating Krishna consciousness to others, they have this ability. And as he said, this ability actually comes as a result of practicing Krishna consciousness oneself. Because by personal experience, here the, the words are used, by comparison to his own self, he sees the true equality of all beings in both their happiness and distress. That is, the, that is how Krishna defines here the perfect yogi. Sayogi paramomata. Now, it, later on at the end of the same chapter, Krishna defines the best yogi in a slightly different way, which is not necessarily uh, contradictory or, or disharmonious. He says, of all yogis, the one with great faith who always abides in me, thinks of me within himself, and renders transcendental loving service to me. He is the most intimately united with me in yoga, and is the highest of all. That is my opinion. So this is Krishna's opinion about who is he. Here it says, Same yukta tamomata. They kind of mean the same thing. In both cases, Krishna says this is his opinion, but we all know whose opinion is greater than Krishna's opinion. So, that means that if someone has great faith and always abides in Krishna, thinks of Krishna within himself and renders transcendental loving service to Krishna, that person will naturally develop this ability by comparison to, own, to his own self to see the true equality of all beings in both their happiness and in their distress. <clears throat> Sometimes we find there are religion, religious processes, or rather I should say religions, because the processes are less well-defined. But we have religious faiths, I'll say, maybe is the best word. And in those faiths, people have very much devotion to God, but they don't see the divinity in all other living beings whom they eat for example, or whom they kill. So, that, that, that betrays a lack of empathy. If we could understand the pains and pleasures of another living entity, 
We would not want to un put another living entity into such difficulty, needlessly. And it usually is needless. So that's just one example that Srila Prabhupada often used to, he used to harp on. But there are many things described in this purport. That's not one of them, so I won't dilate on it too much. But it's by dint of his own personal experience. Swanubhava, in Sanskrit, personal experience means Swanubhava. Actually, the whole of the Vedic literatures, they discuss nothing but the personal experience of the consummate yogis such as Shukadeva Goswami and others. So Srila Prabhupada writes, therefore, that the cause of distress of a living entity is forgetfulness of his relationship with God, and the cause of happiness is knowing Krishna to be the supreme enjoyer. Three things, the supreme enjoyer, the supreme proprietor, and the sincerest friend. Here he, he, he states these three things in a slightly different way. He says, the cause of happiness is knowing Krishna to be the supreme enjoyer of all the activities of the human being. That's number one. The proprietor of all lands and planets. That's number two. And the sincerest friend of all living entities. That's number three. Does anybody know where is Srila Prabhupada getting this idea from? Yes. Krishna says that of himself. I believe it's in chapter 9. Chapter 5. 5 yeah, 5. Yeah. Chapter 5, text number 29. That was partially correct. Yeah. It's in the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> Krishna says that about himself. It's actually, yeah. He says, Bhoktaram yajnyatatasam. That means, I'm the supreme enjoyer of all sacrifices. Sarvaloka meheshwaram. I'm the supreme lord. Uh, of all the planets and all the societies. And Surdam Sarvabhutanam. I'm the supreme friend of all living beings. Gyadva, knowing this, he says, Mam Shantim Rachiti. One attains to supreme peace. Srila Prabhupada used to refer to this as the peace formula. But this, his, his stating this here in his purport indicates the degree of fidelity that Prabhupada exercised when he wrote these purports. I myself didn't, didn't realize this when I first read Srila Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita. All I knew was that it started to make sense to me in a way that the other Bhagavad Gita's didn't make sense. Only after a few decades of studying Sanskrit by which I was able to study the same commentaries that Srila Prabhupada himself consulted by his predecessors. Commentaries by, for example, Baladevi Dyabhushana, Srila Vishwanath, Chakravarti Thakur, Sridhar Swami, Madhusudan Saraswati, so many others. Then I could understand that virtually everything that Srila Prabhupada is saying in any of his purports it is either coming straight from the scripture, as in the example that I just gave you, or from the comments of his predecessors. So, <clears throat> I just thought I would mention that. Now, 
Srila Prabhupada continues to say, the perfect yogi knows that the living being who is conditioned by the modes of material nature is subjected to the threefold material miseries due to forgetfulness of his relationship with Krishna. Okay, do we all know what are the three modes of material nature? Raise your hand if you know what are the three modes of material nature. Okay, not everybody knows. How about these, what he mentions, this other thing. Threefold material miseries. Sanskrit, uh, I mean, it's often been said, Hindus in general, they like to categorize things. So, this is an example of that. Threefold miseries of material existence means miseries that are produced from the external environment. Miseries that are produced from, that, for example, in California for many years they've had drought. That is the external environment. I met one man, he is in charge of all the dam projects in the state of California. That's a pretty weighty responsibility because California doesn't have much water, but it has a lot of people. And everybody wants to move there because the weather is nice. But you've got to have water. So he was telling me that now all, they used to grow things like citrus fruits when I was a kid. I grew up there, so I know. They used to grow lemons and grapefruits and oranges and such things. Recently, people have started growing cashew nuts and almonds. And those require a tremendous amount of water. And he said that this man was explaining to me, you know, the strain that's put on all the aquifers of California have actually sunk the, wa the, 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 the state by maybe one or two feet. And which means that that water is not coming back because the aquifer has shrunk by one or two feet. All right. <clears throat> So, threefold miseries of material existence means the external environment is imposing difficulties like this. That's called adhidaivik klesh, things that are imposed upon us by fate. Adhipautik klesh means, another kind of these threefold miseries, means miseries that are visited upon us by other living beings. This is something we have experience of in this world. Anybody know toxic people? <laughs> toxic people are called in Sanskrit adipautic klesha. <laughs> and it's not just people, actually. In India where I live, if you get bitten by a certain kind of mosquito, then you will get dengue fever. And you'll probably die. Many people in Delhi, a few years ago, they died, they died yes. because of this. And just from a little mosquito bite. That is also considered to be an adipotic klesh. And the last of these threefold miseries is called adhyatmic klesh. And that we know very well in America. Miseries that are produced from your own body or your own mind. In America, they're mainly from the mind. We are so confused and we're so agitated that half of the country is addicted to opioids right now. 
because they just can't handle it. They need some escape. So these threefold miseries are what Shita Prabhupada is talking about. They're, they're miseries that are coming from karma, as somebody said earlier. That is to say, fate, like you know, external calamities. I gave the example of droughts. Or forest fires. In California, half the state burns down every day. Uh, just, to, just to compound the fact that they don't have enough water, as it is. <clears throat> Not every day, every year. So, <clears throat> anyway. So these are the threefold miseries of material existence. They're coming from our own bodies and minds. They're coming from others, other living beings, human or non-human. What's the third, please? Nature. Fage. Yes. Yeah. So it's important to keep these in mind because we find this shibboleth throughout Shiva Prabhupada's books, this particular phrase. Now, three modes of material nature. This, this sentence is impossible to understand until we define these terms. There are three modes in which this world operates. Everything within this world is, is, is driven by these three modes. What are these three modes? Goodness, passion, and ignorance. It's a great topic. In fact, it's the subject matter of at least two or three chapters in Bhagavad Gita, for the most part. Chapter 14 is explicitly named after these three modes of material nature, so I would suggest anybody curious should study chapter 14 of Bhagavad Gita. So goodness means illumination, awareness. Sometimes we have to be conscious. Certainly we have to be conscious. Because after all, you can't be Krishna conscious until you're first of all conscious. <laughs> so that's called sattva guna. To be aware, to be pure, to be knowledgeable, to be virtuous. These are all that characteristics of the mode of goodness. There are many more things that we can't, don't have time to explain now. Rajaguna, this is passion, and the name is pretty self-explanatory. Passion. What does passion imply? Strong desire. And in particular, desire for the opposite sex. Nowadays, it doesn't even matter if it's the opposite sex or not. People have become so agitated. But <clears throat> this is mode of passion. Or we, we find people are very greedy, gamblers. People get very angry also. So anger is, one, is the result of frustration of one's desire. They're closely related. Passion and ignorance. So ignorance is... Wrath. Wrath is, is one, one characteristic of ignorance. But ignorance in general means darkness, obliviousness, laziness, inaction. These, these are, therefore it's called the mode of ignorance. You just ignore things, just, just blow them off. Irresponsibility, this is ignorance. So these three influences, they actually permeate all the, the times of the day. They permeate all the things that we eat. They permeate everything that we do, everything that we want. They, in fact, dictate what we want to a large degree of the time. These modes of material nature are very, very powerful in this world. 
So let's, now that we have that background, let's read this sentence again and see if it makes more sense. The perfect yogi knows that the living being who is conditioned by the modes of material nature is subjected to the threefold material miseries due to forgetfulness of his relationship with Krishna. If we just reawaken this understanding, automatically we will understand these other things and we will be able to act in a, in a productive manner, in a progressive, liberating manner. Okay. So, because one in Krishna consciousness is happy, he tries to distribute the knowledge of Krishna everywhere. Because he's happy. How many people are happy in this world? Actually happy. Many people, they want so many things. Money, prestige, sex, fast cars, nice house, good job, whatever. But how many people actually get happy as a result? Many, many people have strong desires, and we've already described what is strong desire belong to which category? Passion. Passion. You see, many, many people, they have so many great aspirations in life that they, they consider them, at least, to be great aspirations. But how many people actually are happy, can truly say that they're happy? Not so many. Not so many. And this is, what, this is why Srila Prabhupada says, the perfect yogi, I'm sorry, he says, uh, yeah, a person who is happy in Krishna consciousness, 